Hi, I'm Mark Spiegler, and this is Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, brought to you by UBS. I've often talked about how, when it comes to tech, the art world, which considers itself avant-garde, can often be quite reactionary, lagging badly when it comes to embracing innovative technologies. This week's podcast brings together two guests who hit this topic from very different angles. Jacoby Satterwhite, a young, black, queer artist from America's Deep South, started as a painter, pivoted into performance, and now pursues a primarily digital practice. He first came to prominence at the 2014 Whitney Biennial, and his solo show, Spirits Roaming on the Earth, just opened at Carnegie Mellon University. Jacoby is joined by Swedish curator Daniel Birnbaum, who, after leading a great many biennials, shocked the art world a couple years ago by joining the virtual reality company Acute Art. This conversation covered a ton of terrain. We went from the 1960s initiative EAT, Experiments in Art and Technology, to NFTs, this year's art market breakthrough, by way of Russia's KGB and Elon Musk's SpaceX. And stick around for this week's short feature, improbably taped at the North London Stadium of the Tottenham Hotspurs Football Club. Our correspondent Annie Shaw, who's an art newspaper contributing editor, went there to check out Balls, the debut show from a new gallery called Oof. The exhibition uses football, aka soccer, as a starting point to address themes including hooliganism and sexuality, and it features work by artists such as Sarah Lucas and Hank Willis Thomas. This episode was particularly fun to produce, so we hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. Jacoby, I actually have a very distinct memory of meeting you, I think, for the first time, which was that I was having dinner with my friends Nicola Vassell and Tracy Ryans at Miss Lily's on Houston Street in New York. Mm-hmm. And you showed up and Nicola said, this is Jacoby Satterwhite. He's going to blow up. <laughs> and she was right. I'm thinking it was sometime around the 2014 Whitney Biennial, which is where you did actually start to get the traction that now has just snowballed and gained momentum in the last few years. And the work you showed there was, I assume, based upon video game engines. But what's interesting is, as is so often the case, as much as you think you know people, when you do your research, you come across things. And I didn't realize that you trained as a painter. I'd seen your early performance videos, but maybe tell me a little bit about the trajectory that brought you from painting to performance and then into being so heavily within the virtual reality space now. I did train in painting since I was like 14, but with that said, I think I hit a dead wall after making 150 paintings, interrogating a certain kind of figuration that didn't align with me culturally with the audience that I had at the time. And I was also thinking about art, how I really need to bring it back to a place that is so personal that I feel like by default, it feels critique proof. And I was reminded that I started making art because of my relationship with my schizophrenic mother, who is dead now, but she raised me making thousands and thousands of these schematic diagrams of consumer objects. And she made these diagrams with weird language prompts around them as if they were like performance scores or Gertrude Stein poems. I was trying to help her make them as a kid. And that's what sent me down the pipeline of becoming an artist. I started to experiment and I started to teach myself After Effects 
because I was sick of just doing performance art films. I was like, that's not enough. I'm a maker. As a painter, I'm like super formalist about it. And I think about perspectival space with surface and color and light and um, my medium. I took these graphite drawings made by my mother from 20 years ago, and I traced at least 230 of them, built them and made this codex. And then through more experimentation, because I was already into the performance mode and I was thinking about how I really wanted to figure out how can I have my cake and eat it too and make these German expressionist paintings that I'm obsessed with. Jacoby, feel free not to answer this question, but I'm going to pose it anyway. You suffered from cancer in your right arm. And as I understand it, you therapeutically played a lot of video games during your treatment. And then because Mm -hmm. of its progression now... It basically means you can't do performance in the way that you would like. And so in essence, do you see a relationship between the disease and the virtual space and how it's brought you to it in two different ways? Oh, absolutely. I was watching the QAnon documentary on HBO and the person who started with 8chan, I guess they have disabilities too. And I was thinking how they built this world and they were really good at it. That completely changed the earth because of their limitation. And I think that's what happens when your body has restraints is that it pivots a lot of your intellectual energies into very unique and unexpected places. And so growing up with cancer and playing Final Fantasy as an escapism because chemotherapy was such a drag, my mind focused on the 32-bit gaming space as a vernacular of escapism. And so it sits with me for the rest of my life. Like the way that I think about whether it's a painting or a sculpture or the decisions I make in my virtual reality pieces. So, yes, I can't perform in the way that I want to and I shouldn't. I used to do a lot of durational and intense performance art because I was inspired by the greats. It was kind of crazy because it's like, I need to pick a battle. I'm going to be a digital artist or am I going to (laughs) be a crazy person hanging themselves upside down for 20 minutes? It was doing harm to my body, to be honest. And so I had to take a step back and focus on more the possibilities of what The more I became better at a filmmaker and a 3D animator, and when I opened the virtual reality process, I realized I could be more of a service to my audience and the art world behind the camera, the computer, the canvas, than just being the actual protagonist. And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. Here's today's insight from the Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report, brought to you by UBS. Online sales doubled in value last year, accounting for 25% of total sales. In another first, the share of art market e-commerce exceeded that of general retail. Yet 80% of collectors still prefer physical exhibitions. Can this rate of acceleration continue? For more insights, visit ubs.com slash collecting. And now back to the show. The notion of restraint, the binding, etc., is present in your performance pieces. And for those who haven't seen them, they're quite visceral, durational performance pieces, which look like they were incredibly painful. The video spaces that you create, which people wander through using VR, are populated not only by your mother's influence, her drawings, her songs as well, but also by at least the aesthetics of queer BDSM environments. 
Yes. And I'm curious whether you feel like this is material that is more palatable to a broader audience when it's in the virtual space than if it was in the physical space? Do you think there's a vicarious transgression that's going on here in that space, that people can do things in a virtual space that they would feel uncomfortable doing in a physical space? Well, partially, there is some truth to that. I learned that principle from Miyazaki, the Japanimation filmmaker, because a lot of Miyazaki's films were tackling really difficult transgressive topics like sex trafficking with Spirited Away or the HIV AIDS pandemic with Princess Mononoke. His films literally were subverting global crises within the lens of chronic spectacle and facility and execution. I think when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, I took a research class on anime and him and auteur theory. And I think that is what got me in the direction of challenging what could be on these mediums to talk about more subversive and interesting things. When I use sexuality and S&M and that's aesthetic, it is not because I'm like, literal and being queer and like, this is my community, this is my world. No, I'm not. I happen to be shooting in Fire Island or in Los Angeles at the Standard Hotel. I have participated in these places in order to get the footage, but the way it comes back to my computer is a much more poignant and metaphorical place. In a video I did called Blessed Avenue, you will see a lot of people wearing helmet laying S&M gear, performing these slave master dialectic acts on each other. But what you notice in this film is that everyone's connected by the same rope and you can't tell who has the hierarchy or who's the sub, who is the slave, who is the master, who's the alpha, who's the beta. But everyone's complicit being underneath, being triangulated in the same machine in that channel. And then on the right channel, if you notice, it's just a really ambitious found footage, composite animation of climate change, disaster zone scenarios with these Black men on Pegasus flying above it. They're like the flying Negro flying above. Okay, so it's basically about catching someone's eye and then directing it to a place they might not look somewhere else. Yeah. Daniel, I've known you for so long that I don't even remember when we met. You curated a great number of exhibitions showing global artists. You were the rector of the Stadelschule and Porticus in Frankfurt, and most recently, you led the Moderna Museet. A few years ago, you surprised everybody by announcing that you were going to join a VR company called Acute Art. And I think one story I've never heard is how this came to pass. I guess I surprised myself a bit, too. Why wouldn't I try something and explore a world that I don't know? It's fun to think of uh, one's uh, professional life as a way of... Uh, an educational journey too. Moderna Museet, which is you know the last place where I worked full time when it comes to the traditional art world uh, institutions that you mentioned, it has a long history of art and technology dialogues. There was this thing called EAT, and you know in conferences about art and technology, sooner or later someone will always mention experiments in art and technology because it involved some of the key artists of, of recent decades. 
It was um, an initiative uh, that involved uh, John Cage and Robert Rauschenberg. Rauschenberg was actually one of the people initiating this, together with a guy who was Swedish, but he lived in the U.S. all his life, or uh, most of his life, called Billy Cleaver, an engineer who used to work for Bell Labs. And the Moderna Museet actually has some of the archives from this um, interesting period. And uh, we kept doing things having to do with the uh, EAT. And um, stock where Moderna Museet is located, is, it's not New York, it's not London, it's not a huge city, but it's actually quite interesting city when it comes to digital technologies or technology per se. Spotify is from Stockholm, Skype is from Stockholm. The telephone was maybe not invented, but more or less branded by Ericsson, a Swedish company. We kept doing things, and as a museum director, you always try to bring in people to collaborate with. It's part of the job to find the partners and new forms of funding. And a key Cute Art is a small initiative, it's a studio, it's a kind of atelier, and the people initiating this are actually Swedish. But back then it was this conference about art and technologies where I met them, and they said that there are these new mediums, VR and AR, is certainly going to become a big thing, and maybe you can help us uh, introduce important artists into this world. So we brought Olafur Eliasson and Marina Abramovic and Jeff Koons, and they were on stage at that conference, and they started to fantasize or speculate about what virtual reality could be. And then, you know, at some point, maybe half a year after that, the same people asked me, could you not do this for a while. And then I thought, why not? But what was the range of reactions you got when you did this? Yeah, mainly surprise. And also, what the hell is this? I mean, VR, things that you have to look at through some ugly headset. And I had to agree when people said this is so limited compared to all the things that you can do in a museum and that you can do as part of a biennial and all of that. I remember there's this German art newspaper or art journal called Art that comes out of Hamburg. And they made fun of Hans-Uli Schoberst and me, I remember, in 2009 or 10, that we were involved in too many biennials. They listed all of them. So I thought, you know, I've done some of that and I've done a lot of museum shows. So why not try something which is radically different? And, you know, the art world has its structure. I'm curious, is it very different? Do you think of yourself as working in tech now or as working in art? No, but Mark, as you know, I'm a very classical curator type, or maybe I've been a critic too. So I'm not a tech person, but I see it a little bit like I'm not a chef, but I like going to nice restaurants. And I'm not an artist, but I've been a curator or a critic. So I see it as a curatorial possibility to see what happens when artists get access to tools and visual possibilities that they maybe wouldn't have had. We Mm -hmm. have artists like Jack Holby here, who is so savvy that he can produce his own works in these mediums. So I don't see myself as a tech person in that sense. I think it's interesting to compare this moment to previous moments. I remember in the early 1990s when video became this big thing. We all know that video art was around already in the 60s and early 70s with Joan Jonas and Bruce Nauman and all of these people, but it was still pretty specialized somehow. And then our generation, I'm referring to you, Mark, Jacobi is so much younger than us, but people like Douglas Gordon and Doug Aitken, A. Elisa Attila, suddenly they dominated the art world, at least the art world of big exhibitions. So the video projection changed everything. And I guess in every century, you have a moment once or twice when something new is introduced that really changes everything. Remember 
we weren't born then, but when photography arrived, everybody wondered, what is this? Is this going to be art? Is this uh, science? What is it? And, you know, will it kill painting? And then, you know, after that, we had the cinema and some point the video camera and some point the internet. And in this century, we have a cluster of new mediums or maybe it's actually one new possibility, immersive technologies or whatever we want to call it with the AR and mixed reality and VR. And, and it will change many things, not only in the art world, I think. It will change our way of communicating in our way of maybe understanding what communication can be. And when things are new, they, of course, produce a lot of confusion, but there is also maybe a sense of freedom when it's not fully defined and fully commercialized and not normal yet. There's this window of experimentation, and I think we're in that window right now. And I think, uh, in a way, Jacobi was one of the very first people to enter that uh, zone, and now it's becoming more normal. Daniel, you talked about the influence of experiments in art and technology, which was in the 60s which John Cage was part of. And Jacoby, you've talked about Cage as someone who was very influential for you in terms of your thinking. But that was 50 years ago. And my question is, where is today's experiments in art and technology? I don't think of our world as being particularly progressive when it comes to embracing technology. How do you feel about this? Yeah, I mean, Mark, it's true that big parts of the art world is... Um, relatively skeptical of new technologies. But there are exceptions. And EAT, with all these famous and important artists, are an exception. There was something in Germany called Zero. They were very kind of techno-affirmative, so to say. And, and then there are these, you know, Namjoon Pike, and there's uh, Laurie Anderson, and they're fantastic people, but they're more like individual exceptions almost. Of course, there's net art, and the whole thing kind of developed with the internet. And where is it today? I have to say, I remember... When I saw Jacolby for the first time, I had come across some of his works, of course, all over the place, in exhibitions, in biennials, in, you know, many, many places. But then it was a place in Brooklyn called Pioneer Works. That's where we met. And I remember going back to my friends. And then I told them that I think I met the genius. I'm sorry to say this, Jacobi, because it's not superficial flattery. But then they said, what do you mean? You know? But I just said, it's a total artist. It's someone who can do new technology experiments on his own. I mean, I think it's very interesting that there are people like Jacobi. I'm sure there are a few others. But, you know, where is EAT? I don't know. But I have to say, the initiatives, including the little thing I work with, which is growing, is at least the ambition is to be part of such a dialogue. It's interesting to think about how some artists maybe move into new technologies to realize that what they could not have done in other worlds. I remember having a conversation with Johan Koenig, the gallerist, whose family I'm very close to. And, you know, Johan said, but you can't teach old dogs new tricks, meaning why do new things with very, very established artists in other fields? But at the same time, I have to say, the things we did with Jeff Koons and Marina Abramovich and Olaf Eliasson, of course, they are artists who are known for other things than for VR, of course, but they all had their reasons. One of the rules when we approach an artist or an artist approaches us is that we only want to do things that they couldn't have painted or made as a piece of sculpture or as a film or as an installation. The ambition is to create new things that could not have been produced. And I have to say that to return to that moment in Brooklyn with Jacobi, I felt that here's a guy who really produces 
medium-specific new things that I don't even know what to call. I don't even know what they are. I don't know exactly what genre, his background in everything from music to choreography to painting translates into something which is new and that could not have happened in traditional mediums. So yeah, there are a number of artists where I would say that's where it happens, but I, I really do think that Jacobi is one of them. Thank you so much. Jacobi, how do you see this? I appreciate everything you said. It makes me feel emboldened to finish my new project. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like I understand exactly what you both are saying, but my opinion on this is that I think things are going on that are so forward among young artists and people, my peers, but they're just hyper unesthetic and they don't really have a place to live. The experiments that I feel like are really, really strong right now that are speaking to our time in a very zeitgeist way. I think experiments with artificial intelligence. Ian Ching did this amazing piece with artificial intelligence and the, the piece that keeps changing. Okay, yeah, there's also the piece that he did, which I actually think is one of the great digital pieces because it looks like an anime movie, but it's actually constantly generated by a different set of rules. He basically created a universe and created the interaction rules for it. And based upon those interaction rules, it creates this film, which you think is a loop, but is actually is infinitely generated. Exactly. Corey Archangel has been doing the same thing with social media platforms, but that's just the seedling of the future. Both of these ideas are pretty much like the beta version of where I think artists are moving forward because one of my favorite art pieces of all time this is controversial to say, is the spyware and stuff the KGB and Russia have been making, controlling us, and Cambridge Analytica and how it disrupted our democracy. I think that should get the Venice Biennale Golden Lion because it's dark, but <laughs> it literally is speaking about how society is a sculpture, how we can be manipulated through the data bank of the way that I use archives to do world building with my mother's drawings and other performances and found media off the internet. And I consolidate them with my hand in a very tactile, linear way to build something you've never seen before. I feel like super infrastructures and the governments and people like cyber warfare is making art forms that are negative and bad and they're weapons. But my controversial contribution to this podcast is to say that it's a medium. <laughs> As you said, Daniel, when you went to acute art, there was this view that basically you were going to try to make artworks for people wearing these cumbersome headsets. What's interesting is that VR headsets have not become as widely disseminated as people thought. The holy grail that people keep talking about in that space is the metaverse and that, that the problem with VR is you're alone there. Everyone is, says, and this is what I want your view on, that there will come a time relatively soon when you'll put on your VR headset and you won't be wandering around alone in some universe, but you'll actually be interacting with people all over the world in a space potentially designed by an artist or an architect. So I imagine the metaverse is a word that comes up in conversation for you all the time. And I'm curious for you, what does it mean? And how soon do you think it's coming and what impact will it have? Yeah, I was going to do a solo exhibition at Mitchell and Nash last year, 2020, with the HoloLens. I think they're on the third version now. It's definitely like the beta thing that speaks to this mixed reality metaverse thing. Because with the HoloLens, if all of us had HoloLenses on right now and we had the app to the same world, we could interact with each other's objects in our separate rooms and see what's happening. We could coexist 
in the same environment, but through our like this lens, it's very realistic, mixed reality that allows us to participate with the same architectural forms from different parts of the planet. But the thing is, it's just like a glass over your face, so you can still see. So it's kind of like AR plus VR. So you're where you are, but you're actually in another space, which is virtual with other people from all over the world, which transforms the virtual space from a lonely place to a highly social place, potentially. You can do movie screenings. It's incredible. It's in the early phases. And I think that Google is working on variations of this that are a little more sleek and less jarring on your head. But we're definitely going to enter that space soon. I believe by 2025 or 2026, we'll be at a MoMA exhibition where there'll be disposable HoloLens glasses or something that you can get at the door and then just pay a $30 fee and experience whatever the artist has programmed. Jacoby, why would you even go to MoMA? You just do it from home. Well, right? you know, we're traditional. <laughs> Truly, actually. Daniel, how do you <laughs> yeah. see this? Well, I used to ask your question, like, when is it happening? When does this actually happen then? And someone said that the answer to all of this anyhow seems to be it happens when Apple decides that it's happening. This is maybe a little bit, maybe not quite the truth, but, you know, there's so many competing companies trying to sort all of this out. It's interesting here during the pandemic that uh, certain developments have been uh, fast forwarded, no? I mean, the whole digitization has led to, uh, it's so normal for us to do these kinds of things that we're doing right now and that we're Zoom and that people look at things through screens and we didn't stop doing virtual reality works. Then, you know, when we launched that little Ula for AR project, a number of components that he called Wunderkammer, it reached more people than anything I have ever been involved with, including the Venice Biennale. Certainly, hundreds of millions of people engaged with that, shared it and sent it to people and friends and took photos of their dogs or their brothers. And it's maybe not a full, rich art experience the way that we wish that it should be, like when you go to an art show or a museum. But I think somewhere between this augmented reality possibility and VR, there will be new forms and they will be hybrid. I saw something marked that you said in a newspaper and I thought, hmm, that's right. Well, you know, will the art will be digital in the future. You said no, but it will be hybrid. It will be many things at the same time. I actually think that institutionally, you don't have to be Michel Foucault to understand that things can change. Paradigms change. If you lock everyone on this planet into their apartment, you invent new currencies through which you can exchange things. You invent new mediums like AR and VR. Even institutionally, things will change. And I would say, why go to MoMA? I mean, I don't think MoMA will disappear, but the whole paradigm that we are so used to, the idea that there's a biennale in every city or that there's an art fair in every city and you fly to another continent for a weekend and then you buy art and then you go home <laughs> in an airplane with your painting in the luggage. All of that, I think, will somehow fade away. There are formations that live during certain periods. I think that the kinds of mediums that we're talking about here, they're not the solution to everything, but they're part of a new formation. I still stand by what I wrote more than a year ago, that the future of the art world is not digital, but hybrid. But it is much more democratic in the sense that the great thing about acute art and other projects like it is you just download an app and there it is. You don't have to travel. You don't have to live in a big city to be able to go to a museum. You don't have to pay admission. Museums have always measured their success in how many people attended. And of course, virtual attendance also counts 
to some degree. And I'm curious about the notion that the digitalization democratizes the art world. Jacoby, as someone who comes from the margins in several ways, how do you think about this? How do you think about digitalization and the democratization of the art world? I think we're already being primed for that through this whole NFT thing that makes me roll my eyes. But oh, we're going to talk about NFTs for sure. <laughs> Go ahead. But I think with that whole thing coming out of the pandemic, it put into the collective consciousness a more seriousness around digital art, especially digital artists. I think there's a lot of shitty stuff being made in that world, but I think because there was a couple of auctions, whenever capitalism becomes aligned with anything, even if it's a banana with tape on the wall, people with like eyes raised. There's a collective awakening around digital media and a democratization around it that's going to allow it to mix with the fine art world in a more serious way. I think that we'll be feeling the wrath of the NFT moment in like four years because of the pandemic has forced us to have so many uh, online viewing rooms and HBO premiering a movie, a box office film because of a $10 million contract, Zoom culture, Zoom performances, going to the club on Zoom. I've went to the club on Zoom and dance. I've done that too. It's weird. Yeah. It's like all of that has become so normalized that we don't even know. We're just getting back into this post-vax world and we're all rapidly adjusting and figuring out how we've evolved. But we've normalized so much. We're already in this mixed world and the results are just going to show. There's a results probably will show when all the biennials start to really manifest next year, like the Whitney and the Venice Biennale and how artists have reacted from these crises. Daniel, I have to say that for me, acute art was the story of the digitalization of the art world. And then the NFTs came. What was that like when suddenly the digital artists people were talking about were not the ones you were using with acute art, but people like Beeple and Pac? Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. We have worked uh, without a master plan, but with many plans at the same time, just thinking that if we develop things with important artists in these new mediums, they're not worthless. And at some point, maybe they can be collected and even artists need to make money and so on. But everyone always said that it will be blockchain based. There will be additions on the blockchain. We haven't given up that at all, but we were not quite prepared for the kind of explosion that happened at the beginning of this year. Some of the artists that we worked with have done NFTs, but it hasn't been with the works that we have been developing. Some of the artists uh, who have very, very solid markets and careers, and say, as an example, Anish Kapoor, with whom we did a quite, I think, beautiful virtual reality journey. If we would have tried to sell that as an NFT, and maybe we could have, and then suddenly the whole thing collapses also. I don't know what the NFT market looks like as we're talking right now, but there was some sort of total collapse a few weeks ago, or maybe two months ago. It's dangerous maybe also for artists to be part of, especially if you're very young and you're exploring all these things that doesn't matter. But if you have your standing and you have your galleries and you have your market and then you're doing things with a new technology that looks very promising but then collapses, I don't know. I think the fact that people were suddenly willing to collect these things, regardless of what we think of individual pieces or artists, it's an interesting development that one thought that everything on the internet, everything digital is interesting but should be for free. And suddenly there these objects out there that are unique or very rare and people are willing to spend money on them, beyond the commercial side of this, it actually shows some sort of change of attitude that is very interesting and I would say very promising for people who explore these worlds. It's also an entirely different group of collectors. That's people who mm -hmm. are drowning in quickly generated crypto dollars. Jacoby, how do you see this? How do your even younger peers see this? 
it's funny because around like January, February, I had a lot of agents and different kinds of people coming at me with Bethy because they were like excited that I kind of like do the sonic things and the visual things on my own. So they kind of saw me as a potential cash cow in it. I had a few people almost convince me I was about to go down this road because I didn't know anything about it. This is before all of the articles and before the Beeple thing came out. And I told my gallery, (laughs) I'm thinking about doing this thing. And then they didn't know what it was. And then I think a week later, they called me back and like, hold up, let's take a pause on this. Let's get some lawyers. Let's research this thing. So I ended up never doing it because like you said, if you already have a gallery and a market, it's kind of dangerous to put yourself into this experimental blockchain that could easily destabilize everything for you just because you sold some JPEG for $900,000 with a share. And so... In a way, I didn't do anything. And I think I'm kind of glad I didn't so far. I'm in this for the long game. If you weren't worried about the potential reputational damage of playing in the NFT space, would you be more likely to do it? Yeah, well, you know, honestly, I thought about it. There are ways that it could be great. I'm not completely opposed to doing it. Actually, came to the conclusion it's kind of harmless. I just have been preoccupied with other shows that I've been doing. But yeah, I think that NFT have a lot of potential because all it does is just make your digital thing unique and it makes it like a non-fungible token blah 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 i think that many wonderful amazing innovative things can be done with this i still have a bunch of ideas around it and i still may do those ideas it's just that it's a whole different market it's not the art world it's a bunch of guys in silicon valley or in other countries that are major crypto nerds and have some disposable income to play with it's a whole different kind of audience that doesn't even care about the arts or fine artists i care about money i want some money give me some money but i also realized if i was going to enter this world the dialogue i was entering didn't even give a damn about the product that i was creating but the people who wanted to deal with me in the nfc world just cared that my resume was five pages long associated with digital media, so it made me look like a more promising investment. That's a very gimlet-eyed view. It's a very clear view. It's very well put. I want to just say this to get this out in the air. It's just so interesting that this blockchain thing is also contributing to climate crisis. These computers that are minting these tokens, there's a graphic card shortage because so many people are buying graphics cards so they can create cryptocurrency. And it's actually burning the planet up. If that's the case, then that makes you think, how long is this going to last? Never mind. Yeah. (laughs) I hear you. Jacoby, you were saying in a world where everything is accessible via Google, where like basically all of the world's knowledge and history is out there, that it's very hard to be original, which makes me think, do you see the future of art as this endless iterations of remixes and mashups? Is the remix mashup the new innovation? Yes, yes. Every decade, it's just variations of different versions of things. That when there was Bruce Nauman, and then in the 90s, Terrence Coe and Matthew Barney and all these other variations wanted to find another more crystallized, prismed version of Bruce Nauman. And then 20 years later, you find Jordan Wilson wanting to be a different kind of Jeff Coons and Bruce Nauman and Matthew Barney. I sound controversial saying this, but it's just a continuum. And we're constantly using the history and the past as more of a material and a medium. I mean, that's why they call it postmodernism. Because actually the hand and the facility and the paint and the objects no longer have conceptual or historical value. It's about how are they responding to the history that have operated with these same mediums. 
and push things forward. Exactly where this is going to go, I of course don't know. But for me personally, at least here during the pandemic, when everything was closed, at least we produced exhibitions in London and in Beijing and on the High Line in New York. I couldn't go there, but you know, from my kitchen table, we produced strange AR kind of selections and placed them in different places. And people would have to go out and look at them through their telephones or through iPads. But they were both global and very, very local. You had to go to the High Line. It's up there still actually, or you had to go to UCCA with Phil Tinari who had placed them there. I think it's again an example of some sort of global and local hybrid possibility that things will always also be local in the sense that I actually wish we would have been together here now. And the art world likes being together for serious conversations, but also for gossip and for artists and not to mention after parties. All of this is important too. I think we want to be together and therefore it will not just be digital. It will always be both. And uh, where is innovation? I don't think only in the new technologies, but somehow the impact of new technologies on art. If we look back a little bit, things are change. Photography actually produced the ready-made and produced the collage and produced Brock and Picasso. And then the cinematic world produced a lot of interesting things in the visual arts too. I actually am optimistic enough to think from an artistic point of view or curatorial point of view that these new mediums will produce entirely new forms of experience. We have a few examples already actually. And they're not just samples. There will always be, you know, the, the futures may be produced out of fragments of the past or something, but they're also entirely new forms that happen through these new combinations and through these new technologies. That was my little art theory class here. I don't know if that made any sense. No, I think it's a good finale. Jacoby, do you want to add something on top of that? Yeah, this might sound crazy, but I've been thinking a lot about SpaceX and Bezos going to outer space and thinking about... I've actually been having a lot of rumored conversations about people thinking of doing exhibitions out of space or... I don't want to spill too much information, but I've been hearing murmurs about sending ships with NFTs out of space. I've been hearing that is where we're going to go in 2030 when these SpaceX tickets are $300. What do you think is going to happen with us dealing with space? <laughs> and that's where innovation is. I mean, and that's funny because it's such a thing that we've been trying to get to theoretically in art school, thinking about the cosmos as the guide to like, truth and innovation so that's my finale <laughs> okay wow that beats everything right, that's, cosmic that's a, nfts that's a hundred new conversation the cos- yeah that's the hundred percent mic drop jacoby we can just stop right there <laughs> thank you Good. <laughs> i had a great conversation yeah that was interesting daniel jacoby thank you so much that was fascinating and i look forward to seeing you in person and your works in person sometime me soon me too great thank to see you, you. Hello, I'm Annie Shaw, and I'm here at the stadium of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, one of the Premier League's biggest teams. It's match day, it's Spurs versus Arsenal, two North London teams who are fierce rivals. But I'm not here for the football, I'm here to see some art. Nestled within the stadium and accessible via the gift shop is Warmington House, a Grade 2 listed Georgian townhouse which Spurs has renovated and rented out to Oof Gallery. The gallery, which opened last month, is the brainchild of Eddie Frankel, Time Out London's chief art critic, and the curator gallerists Justin and Jenny Hammond. The first show is simply titled Balls, and there are plenty of testicle puns in there, but the exhibition also tackles tougher subjects such as hooliganism, racism and homophobia. So I'm going to head into the gallery now, which is beginning to fill up with fans on their way into the match, 
and I'm going to ask a few of them exactly what they think about having an art gallery in their stadium. Yeah, I think, I think it's really good. It adds something different. It's really cool. It's such a weird like contrast to the stadium. It's good. Like, you wouldn't think and I really enjoyed it. It's quirky. Like yeah, it's quirky. I'm not an art person, but yeah, it's quirky. It's both playful and serious all at once. Usually I go to art galleries and I don't know, they're a bit rude, but they seem really nice here and you can chat to everyone. I'm here with uh, Eddie Frankel, one of the co-founders of Earth Gallery. Eddie, we've just heard um, from the football going public um, and it's their opinion that really matters, isn't it? You open the gallery, not for the art world. I mean, it's in a stadium. It's, it's there for a different kind of audience. Yeah, I mean, so obviously we like the idea, you know, partly of art fans coming to Tottenham, an area that's relatively deprived and has no contemporary art gallery. So that's a nice thing. But the real appeal for us is uh, everyday match going people and the local community having an art space right in the heart of their community. Uh, you know, these are people who maybe don't often get to go to galleries, don't often go to galleries, even if they could. Um, thinking, you know, the stadium is surrounded by schools. How often do those kids get taken to the Tate or the National Gallery? Uh, probably not that often. In fact, I know, not very often. So instead, our hope is that we'll be somewhere that people can come and experience art in an intelligible, approachable, unintimidating way, but without compromising on the quality of the art. So that football setting, I mean, is 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 crucial, obviously. Spurs are the first UK team that can boast a commercial gallery in their stadium. How did that concept emerge? Were Spurs very open to, to your proposition? Yeah, so originally uh, we had the idea of opening, uh, sort of converting a kebab shop on the high road into like a window gallery because we like the idea of people who are walking to the match, walking past some art. Uh, so we approached Spurs in the hope that they might, because we knew that they had a lot of land in the area, a lot of property. So we approached them saying, have you got anywhere that we might be able to do this with? And they said, well, actually, we've got something a lot better than an old kebab shop. And what they had was Warmington House, which is a listed building, uh, which they weren't allowed to knock down when they built the new stadium. Uh, so it's this gorgeous Georgian townhouse, uh, which has been there for ages. It was a farmer's house. It was a restaurant. It was the club, the members club ages ago. Uh, and it's been lying empty for ages. And uh, so they were like, they liked the idea of of having some fine art in the stadium. Of I think for them, it's the appeal of uh, increasing the uh, experience at the stadium. So you can go there. So you can already go and do things like the stadium tour. You can walk along the stadium roof. You can abseil off the top. And I think for them, being able to go to an art gallery is just another step in that evolution. Uh, for us, that's not necessarily the appeal, but we're just, we're lucky that we've landed this incredible building because it's such an, you know, it's the it's a Mayfair quality townhouse. You walk in and you think you're walking into one of the big Mayfair galleries, but you're in Tottenham. That's exactly it. It's like a slice of Mayfair, isn't it? Um, so to get some of those nuts and bolts in there, it is a commercial gallery. Um, so everything or most things are for sale. Um, how does it work? Do you liaise directly with artists? Are you collaborating with other galleries to consign works? I mean, you've got some big hitter, big hitting names in there, the artist wise. Yeah, so almost everything in the gallery is for sale because that's how we're going to survive. Um, and continue being able, that's how we're going to be able to continue to be an art gallery in Tottenham. Uh, so almost everything is for sale. Um, there's half of the work is sort of uh, new commissions by younger artists. That's us working directly with the artists. Um, some is uh, more established artists who and we've borrowed work off. Uh, and then there are some bigger artists like Hank Willis Thomas, where we've worked directly with Ben Brown Fine Arts. And then there's a couple of works which aren't for sale. 
But you have succeeded in, in creating a really quite exquisite exhibition. It's The first show is titled Balls, and it does what it says on the tin. Um, so every work in the show is based on the shape of a football. And as you mentioned, you've got a towering iridescent totem by Han- Hank Willis Thomas. You've got an enormous deflated football by Marcus Harvey, which looks like it's leather, but in fact is bronze, is it? It's some sort of metal. Yeah. Um, and a concrete sculpture by Sarah Lucas. I mean, the list goes on. Um, can you give me a bit of an overview of the show? Because it also tackles some tougher subjects, doesn't it? We're looking at hooliganism, racism and homophobia, those kind of things. So we wanted to create an exhibition that if you had never been to a contemporary art gallery, you'd be able to walk in and immediately understand it. So if someone can walk into that space and immediately understand that everything in there is a sculpture of a football, it's that simple. And you can walk away with that as your reading, and that's totally fine and totally legitimate. Um, And if you choose to go deeper, you'll find that there are a lot of stories there. So I see all the works as split into sort of three categories. You've got stuff that's about nostalgia and youth, like the Sari Lucas stuff, which is about uh, her childhood hero, Charlie George. And then you've got stuff which is more of a sort of a surrealist punchline. There's not a lot to it, like the Laurent Belbo long football. It's just a very long football. That's the entire work. But then you have works that go a lot deeper. Uh, so my favourite work in the show is actually JJ Guest's uh, Balls, which looks like a pair of bollocks, ceramic bollocks in a, in a big net. And it's beautiful. And he's a young uh, gay artist who felt like there wasn't uh, space for his sexuality, not only in football, but in wider society and so what we get to do is we get to put a massive pair of actual balls in a football stadium so you know when he came to see that you know it it was like a form of acceptance he had his sexuality and his art out right there in a football stadium it's a pretty awesome statement uh yeah so stuff tackles think you know the work tackles bigger topics and also lighter topics so like i said there's countless narratives and they're there for you to unravel if you want to that's it. You can dip in on your way into the match, have a good laugh at some testicles, or you can sort of delve deeper, as you say, into some meteor subjects. Aledi, all the best for the future, and thanks for talking with us. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. We'll have a new show every other week. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.